This is Views in Paradox. Classics. Welcome, any and all, to Views in Paradox Classics Edition. Uh, this is a special limited series where uh, three humble filmmakers attempt to go over some seminal classics and fill in uh, the gaps in our education by watching some movies we probably should have seen already. Uh, up first is, or second rather, uh, last week we did Nosferatu, and this week we are talking Fritz Lang's Metropolis, which aired in 1927. Uh, let's uh, Let me start by introducing myself. I am John Olson, uh, also known as John in Paradox, and joining me for the entire duration of this series, we have Daniel Gibson. Welcome. Hello. And Jose Venutola. Yo. All right. So last week we watched Nosferatu. Um, and, you know, this is our only other silent film in the, in the set that we have going. So I kind of want to see how you guys, just like your initial impressions, how it compared to that viewing uh danielle you want to kind of kick us off with some thoughts sure um wow 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 this film i had to repeatedly remind myself uh when it was made because i didn't really believe it um it really completely blows nosferatu out of the water um it was i think like what five years older yeah five years later younger? so nosferatu later. would have been filmed in 21 and this was filmed uh so mostly in 26. yeah yeah no this is like fantastically crafted inspiring i want to learn more about how it was made i'm still processing the story it's there's a lot to unpack here very fascinating though mm. um i'm excited to see what you guys think uh, but yeah, no, yeah. this was, I don't think you can compare these two films really fairly fair. I don't think you can compare, compare Metropolis to most films fairly. Um, That's true. It's a, it's a pretty period. high bar. Uh, Jose, what are some of your yeah. initial thoughts? I mean, I'm going to throw Danielle on saying, wow, because it's, it's uh, it's an epic film. It's like mm -hmm. from the moment it starts, you see like, this is, this is epic. Like the scenography, like the, the artistry that goes on this film, it's phenomenal. I mean, it's things that you try to do today and it will cost too much money or it will be too much of a trouble. And then you end up doing it in a computer or something like that. But I was blown away by how this film, like, like the, the magnificence of this film. Yeah. And, and talking about cost, we were, to, uh, before the show started, we were talking a little bit about the cost of this, uh, show or movie uh, uh, adjusted for inflation. And what did we come up with, Daniel? Because you had looked up those numbers. It, yes, it would have been about 200 million to today's money. Yeah. Um, it, in dollars. So, so it bankrupted the studio. Uh, they, even to finish production, they were forced to borrow $4 million from MGM. And uh, I've kind of found some conflicting uh, information on the second studio. But uh, I believe Paramount, uh, or there was another one called like Film Friends, but they, they had to borrow from American Studios just to finish out the production. And then uh, the, the film, because it was two and a half hours, it couldn't recoup money fast enough. Like they couldn't put it in enough screenings to really recoup their money back at a, at a good rate. And which is still a problem we see today, right? Where we get these like 
two and a half, three hour films. And it's like, how many showings can you really put in a theater? So they wound up restructuring the board uh, of the, of the company. Um, I think it's UFA. Uh, they restructured the board with a much more conservative board of directors who then pulled the film from production because of its Marxist themes, because they, mm. <laughs> they didn't like the themes of the film. And so it just had no shot of kind of ever recouping its money back. Well, can I point out, I, I imagine it to, it's probably a little bit longer than two and a half hours because it's missing right. um, a good bit of it still. Cause it said that there were, there were moments where they would put um, text on what they thought was missing because it was just uh, yeah, completely based on, torn apart after. So yeah. So the film was uh, mostly lost the original prints in Germany and what for close for the better part of a century all we had was uh foreign re-edits of the film so they had edited it down to be much shorter so that they could sell it in foreign markets and that was like all we had and the footage is very good and then in 2008 uh they found a 16 millimeter backup copy in a museum in buenos aires that had just been sitting there for the better part of 75 years this is why we make backups. Right. Okay. And so they cut it together. And in the version that we all watched, which was the free version on YouTube, I'll just throw that out there. You can all watch it for free on YouTube. It does have ads, but they're pretty bearable. Um, so it, uh, in this version, you can easily tell the difference between the original footage and the 16 yes. millimeter. Right. Yeah. Uh, and this made me think of Nosferatu because Nosferatu was entirely a backup copy like this. So that accounts for a lot of the degradation of the footage uh, in the in like the low quality in Nosferatu compared to a lot of this film, right? You can kind of see how that happened. Because uh, we go from 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, and it's like scraped all to hell. Uh, so you can really tell and then there's at least one key scene that I noticed that's cut from the film. And it's the fight between um, right. Uh, the the Mr. Business and the Mad Scientist. Uh, we'll do a quick recap in just a moment. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, I think it was probably closer to 245, right? That's, Most I likely. get a guess, ballpark. At least, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and like, because some of the scenes, it's just like a couple shots were missing here and there that were trimmed down. And like some of them, mm -hmm. I could actually see were like easy cuts to make because it was essentially mm -hmm. like the same action being reiterated. Uh, but mm -hmm. some of them, the cuts were kind of baffling in terms of like, I wondered how people could even follow the film given what was, what was missing. I mean, did you guys have any kind of thoughts like that? I feel like we're really lucky to have seen this kind of restored version. Yeah. I felt like every moment, every beat was drawn out not overly drawn out, but drawn out so much that I assumed that whatever was cut out was already a big chunk. Um, so, I mean, it was like, they would like sum up whatever was missing in a sentence. And I was just like, that that's probably like 10 minutes right there. Yeah. But I don't know if I was just <laughs> overly, because they were just so detailed with everything. Yeah. It's um, true. And I, I made a note at one point during the film where I'm like, almost every action is repeated two to three times. Like a physical action right. that somebody has. 
Like they do everything two to three times as though the audience needs it repeated three times in order to understand what's happening. When I kind of felt like I, I get it on the first one and now you're showing it to me several more times, but you know, you know, maybe I mean, it was trust early, an audience. It's sort of that element like your <laughs> the early we film. Also, like we, we probably grown up knowing how to consume media. I feel like not everybody sees media when they wake up and flip on the TV in 1927. Right. So. right. Um, so to just to give a quick recap um, uh, of the plot of the film, uh, for anybody who hasn't watched it and is just kind of curious about our thoughts on a peripheral level, which is fine. We are going to talk in spoilers, but I feel like the Statue of Limitations is uh, well up by now. So in brief, there is a society <laughs> where uh, there are workers who live below and there are uh, a privileged 10,000 upper the upper crust who live above and live a glorious life. Uh, there is a businessman named uh, Joe Frederson, who is the sole ruler of Metropolis, this great, this great machine powered city. Uh, and his son, uh, who's known as Frederer, uh, has kind of a moral awakening when a woman named Maria confronts him with children from the below city. And then he follows her to the below and he sees the plight of the worker. Uh, and this creates kind of a divide between father and son. The father goes to a mad scientist named, let me get this right. Yeah, it's like, uh, yeah, it's a, uh, a fan, where are you? Rodwin. Rodwing. Uh, he goes to a mad scientist Rodwing. named Rodwing, who has created a automaton that can mimic humanity. And the, the, the Federson winds up uh, using that automaton to create a fake version of, of Maria, who is a symbol of hope for the people to sow discord. And then there is a clash between high and low society. Uh, and and uh, Rotswang is kind of uh, overtly evil in between all this. Like Frederson is evil and he's, you know, callous and, and controlling. But Rotswang is just like, he's like the Joker. He just wants to sow chaos for everybody. And so he like secretly programs the automaton to sow discord both above and below. That's kind of, yeah. I would say the, the gist of it. And we'll, we'll yeah. talk details. Chaotic evil. Yeah. If you want to know more, watch the film. It's, it's really good. I was blown away. Like you guys kind of to give my yeah. initial thoughts, uh, like the technical prowess on display is incredible. Um, if you know anything about cinematography and about sort of measuring light and having to balance these things, uh, the fact that the film looks so good, given the kind of technology and the kind of film stock they had available, is mind-boggling. Like, mm -hmm. I feel like the cinematographers had to be mathematicians to get this right because they did things where they would run the they would run the the film back and forth like up to 30 times to get multiple exposures. So that means you have to like calculate the difference uh, so that you're not overexposing the crap out of your film, just getting like white imagery. Uh, and the fact that it looks so good throughout the whole film 
and that they can contrast sort of light and dark so well within a single frame uh, really blew me away. I was just like, just on a straight technical achievement level, I felt like this film was fairly glorious. Uh, so let's 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 talk uh, a theme and and uh, or or just what impressed you guys the most. Was it kind of production value? Uh, is it story more that you want to impress, or or should we go behind the scenes? Well, I I uh, I mean I want to say something about like trying on what you said. Sure. Like I think like from from my perspective, uh, from an from an editing point of view, this film's fantastic. Like it's like considering the things that you're saying, you know, like like right now you just jump into into an editing program, everything is digital. You want to cross this all to images, you want to superimpose two images, and it's fairly easy. Like now you have these collages of like eyes looking at her, like kaleidoscope images, and you go like, you did not have a computer to yeah. do this. You did this by hand or in by, camera. by in, camera. in camera and then I go like that requires a level like I wouldn't even know how to do them if somebody gives me a camera and goes like you can use a computer to do these and then those collages were like perfectly placed perfectly done to the point that you don't see you don't see mistakes on the mixing and I found that I, I like I was blown away by that. I mean, the, the, the level, the kind of cutting the juxtaposition that they were, that they were doing. I mean, clearly in a difference with Nosferatu, this was, this is closer to modern narrative right. than I, that to the way that I feel. Yeah. Right. Um, and, and on, while we're kind of on the effects, so everything is done in camera, which is really mind boggling. And they, uh, they invented, invented in quotes, uh, a method of superimposing people onto sets, uh, which was right. uh, which was like really kind of. I think it was done before this film, but it was perfected on this film. And uh, the effects artist has the credit for it. It's in my notes. So I have too. I have like too many notes, so now I can't find stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but the effect basically says that we're gonna shoot the the set. And we're going to put a, uh, a window at 45 degree angle. And part of that window is going to be painted with mirror so that we can literally record action happening at a 45 degree angle and we can place it onto the, the frame. So like they were able to add, uh, so like some of it, they did stop motion, like the cars and stuff, they did stop motion, but where they have people on the sets, they had to use this mirror technique and it's very easy to mess it up. And it's very, uh, just like you have to be technically very careful because you're using just like this practical mirror, uh, effect, which is really kind of bonkers when you think about it. It see, is crazy. I want to see, I want to see some sort of like channel that, redoes that like that actually like recreates whatever practical effects yeah. that you'd have to do before digital wow okay yeah Sorry, and apparently there are some later page. films that have done this uh in the on, on the wikipedia page it reference that return of the king used this use this technique for some of the shots and i was kind of oh. like why <laughs> like, <laughs> like i want to i want to know why like uh and so but it's like finding out that you'd have to find some kind of documentary. And do the I feel like they were like really super into practical effects for like all of the Lord, yeah. Lord of the Rings. At least for the, the initial block of shooting. Uh, yeah. For the initial block of shooting on Lord of the Rings, like that first two years, 
Uh, they were really big on practical. And then for the reshoots that came later, uh, they went really heavy on digital. That's why the third movie has so much digital in it because it's faster. <laughs> I've gotten tired of it too. No, I'm kidding. I love practical effects. Yeah. But yeah. But they are no, more work. I, I get it. Uh, and yeah. they, they are more difficult to, to pull off and they just, they just take more time. And like the fact that you have a film like this, that, they have so many practical effects happening. It's so insane. It's so insane. Uh, the film took a staggering 310 shooting days to finish. Uh, to put that in perspective, like the longest film productions nowadays are 100 days. like, And that's like staggeringly long production. Uh, most films try to aim for about 30 production days. Ballpark right? 30 to 60 production days is like a big budget studio film. Uh, it just costs so much. Uh, and on top of that, the film employed a uh, also staggering 37,000 extras. Uh, so <laughs> on IMDb, the, where they wrote it, they had like a breakdown. I don't know how accurate it is, but the breakdown goes as such. 25,000 men, 11,000 women, uh, 1,100 bald men, which is actually just extras willing to shave their heads. Um, uh, 750 children, uh, 100, uh, quote, dark-skinned people, and 25 Asians. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, a lot of white dudes ah! in this film. Like, yeah. like a lot. And, and part of it feels like a... Sometimes it feels like a criticism because, like, all of the upper crust are like white males, right? And even the women we see are all in these very like subservient. It's so incredibly patriarchal. It's one of my first notes. It's so patriarchal. Um, the written by written by a woman. Uh, so, so just to kind of go over some credits, I know I'm backtracking a little, but uh, directed by Fritz Lang, written by uh, Thea von Harbo, uh, and the uh, based on a book by Thea von Harbo, and the screenplay was written by. Uh, both Fritz Lang and Thea von Harbo, they were married at the time. Uh, and apparently Fritz Lang had an idea for this film and asked his wife to write a book. They wrote the book specifically to be published into, uh, or specifically to be turned into a film. So good marketing on their hand. Uh, and then they also released, in the lead up to the film, they released the book in a serialized format in a famous German magazine. So they were like good on they were really smart in terms of marketing. Uh, but it was written by, uh, the, the book is credited solely to Thea Van Harbo. So I think that uh, that makes me think that sort of the patriarchal aspect is very uh, intentional and uh, meant as a criticism as opposed to uh, like a normalization, right? Like a side guys, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's some really, there's some really interesting stuff going on uh, in this, in this film and just kind of the staggering scope of it. Although, although, I mean, I, like I, I, my, my mind went there when I, when I, when I saw the credits and I go like, oh, this was written like a screenplay and novel by a woman with that. But, but that doesn't mean that her intention was specifically to attack it. Like a frame of mind, a frame of mind is genderless. Yeah. 
like mm. like like you know like she, like she could be uh, like though it feels that way when you look at like the dancing scene right where where fake yeah. where fake maria is dancing and we get these shots of the male gaze and they are like mm. just leering and then it it, de- it devolves into just eyeballs right so mm-hmm. i think that they were uh kind of unified on that messaging right that like it's gross because <laughs> uh, that's the that's the feeling the film gave me was that that this is what the upper crust does but that it's wrong right like mm. even from the get-go where they've got you, where they're like painting the women for uh for federer who's like you know the de facto prince of metropolis they're like preparing girls for him to chase around the idyllic garden yeah. uh you know <laughs> yeah that when i first when that whole okay yeah i want to hear I it first, when, yes. when they first said like oh well who's going to be the one to entertain him i was like immediately like oh my god like are these like prostitutes or like are they just like but then it was like in a sense there was a little bit of I don't want to say innocence, but like I didn't think it was going to be as literal as it was. He literally was just like playing, like chasing them around. Well, he is but, about but then to it was make also out. Like, he is about to make out with oh. the one when Maria comes in with the kids. Right? He gets interrupted, and it seems oh, like Federer that. has lived Whoa. such a sheltered existence that like mm-hmm. this is just the world to him. This is what his father has presented women to are him. my my toys yeah. he doesn't like, like yeah. he literally doesn't know any different is kind of the feeling we get <laughs> yeah and i it just i don't know i had it was just like such a mixed bag of like because they present it like first of all you see him and the way he's dressed the way he acts he acts very to me i almost questioned whether or not he was supposed to be younger than his actor's age because he just dressed like a young innocent boy but like also he was very like oh the world is at my disposal and it just it was a weird mix of the two but it was just not i don't know it made me feel weird i was a little put off i think it's very supposed to I mean, it is- um, <laughs> yeah but okay. i you know to, to his character's credit he yes. he has a moral awakening like boom yeah it's just immediately. like it's immediate like it's yeah. kind of a two-step process like one he sees maria and like he's just like oh he's like immediately love at first sight with her but then when he chases after her he runs into the factory and he just sees a machine of death right like he literally sees that we see we get this visual metaphor that is unlike anything modern films do where it literally just like morphs what he's looking at into this like monster machine that it's almost like Aztec and that they're sacrificing people. No, it's, it's, uh, it's, um, it's Moloch. He says it like it appears on the screen. He said he looks at it and then suddenly the, 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 the screen, just the words Moloch comes here. And if you Google Moloch, Moloch, it's a biblical, it's the biblical name of Can on a Canaanite God associated with child sacrifice through fire and war. Moloch is the result of a of a boy. It means king, but it was it evolved as Moloch because the word for king was milk. Um, and it and it resembles the, the the way that the Aztecs used to sacrifice people. You know, like taking yeah. them up. Yeah, to the, that's to what the I meant. The visual then, looks like it's a temple, right? It looks like or like well, a, he makes a, a pyramid but, kind of. 
the movie makes a direct reference to this deity, to this yeah. I don't know, the Babylonian or something yeah. deity called Moloch, and then he calls it by name, and then like I, I and I found like the, the transition between the machine and the face of Moloch was very well. Like that was when I started noticing the editing was like really, really on point. Yeah, mm. there's there's a lot of biblical reference in this movie. Right. It yes. had, it had, yes, it, it, it had finally like something that we didn't see in Nosferatu that we, we commented. There was no religious iconography except for one scene, but it didn't mean a lot. Uh, but here there was a lot of religion iconography mixed with it. Yeah. And it's all like from Revelations. Uh, do you have a thought on that, Daniel? I felt like, yeah, I, I mean, okay. I felt like there was narratively a little bit more religious like references um that that kind of got became very mixed for me because like you know you see the the father is the one who owns everything and then it's the son who goes to go save everyone but then he falls in love with someone named maria who is also um used to mimicked by something that was used to mimic his mom and every time like there's some sort of comparison between the protagonist's like love interest and their mom i'm just like jesus freaking christ your partner's not supposed to be your mother um but like it's just it 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 makes me so mad but there was a lot of there was a mixed mixed bag there i don't know if that was like purposeful um the whole thing with the mom this might be a little bit of a derail uh with the mad scientist i cannot remember his name that's right um I just I just call him uh, the the he's he's an evil um, Beethoven. Yeah. That's what he looks my, like. <laughs> my my brain is always like, oh, the chaotic uh, the chaotic evil guy because yeah. he's just immediately. Um, that reminded me of the. Do you guys know the tale of the corpse's bride? Like the the original. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I just yeah. I'm, oh, I'm with Jose. I just know the Burton one. Oh, no, like the original long story short is this guy who was obsessed with this woman who he wanted to save from she had tuberculosis, she was going to die like there's no anyway, she she was like, who who are you, dude? And he was like, Oh, no, I love you. And then she died. And he like, basically preserved her body with like, just whatever he could and replaced her skin with like paper and like, just made her into this doll. Um, just so that he could like dance around with her and like sleep in the same bed with her and give her her own privacy curtain and like you know uh, basically make well I guess in the film in this film it was like a robot but he had control over the robot right. yeah he has um, um, and there's some interesting background anyway, on yeah. the the wife uh, slash Fredder's mother so he has this giant yeah. effigy and her name is Hell and it is a direct reference to the goddess Hell uh, in North in Norse mythology. Who is the goddess of death uh and it's actually where the biblical word hell comes from it actually comes from the nordic um the nordic goddess who who ruled the the land of hell right it was like her domain uh so kind of like hades was named after hades hell was named after hell uh so he like literally worships death itself right and then this is something that fritz lang talked about later in that kind of as an explanation for his motives right is that he he is you know we relate it to a dead wife but it's like he he worships this thing and it's like and it is the personification of death itself and he uses you know the 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 automaton is supposed to be a replacement for hell like you mentioned and what does he use her for he uses her for destruction and death like nothing but to cause uh chaos 
And it's so interesting because um, she was she was married to um, Frieder's dad. I'm so bad at names. It's yeah. not. Or it's his it's his daughter. Sorry, it's Rotswing's daughter who is married to yeah. Frederson, and she dies in childbirth. The movie tells us. Go right. Um, and so there's already this conflict between uh, between the two of them, even though they're like partnering up to like figure out what's happening in the catacombs of the city. Um, it's really interesting. Um, I feel like I had more of a point to that, but I blanked. It happens. It happens. <laughs> the, I, I want to okay. mention a couple of things that I have. I mean, I'm reading my notes here. And then, you know, because we have seen this movie after we've seen modern films, then it's, a, it's then you, you find yourself saying like, oh, this is like what they did in the Matrix. But, you know, it's kind of like the opposite yeah. around. So I kind of wonder like if, if this, because the moment that they start going down, on the elevators, I go. This is Zion. This is like freaking Zion and, and the Matrix, where they have all the machinery on the underground, and then it supports a part on top. Like I don't know if yeah. if if purposefully, I think one well, will be pulled from the, the other. Wachowskis are big on film reference. Like so many shots in the Matrix, they've directly in the years since attributed to like this or that. So I really wouldn't be surprised because they're just like they are like film historians and they love to pepper their works with references. Uh, yeah, Daniel. So like the images of you just, I think it like starts off in the beginning of images of all those people just being packed into elevators and like being brought down. The only it's thing so powerful. it just reminded me of in internment camps. That was the first thing I thought of, sure. but this is before the, only thing that the gave Holocaust. Me hope, yeah. The, the only thing that gave me solace, I guess, to, to know it wasn't, that militia i mean it's pretty bad but um was that people were coming back so it wasn't like they were being sent to their deaths but also they but were the being work sent is to supposed to slavery. be like a prison right yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. but like, i think the i was thing, wondering the where they is, were going when they were coming back i don't i don't know if they because they have the 10-hour shifts we find out and it's just they go there know. you know they're basically like slaves and they come yeah. back from their shift and they're all downtrodden when they return. So, you know, I always assumed that even where they lived was just down in the elevator. But well, they okay. show us the, the, the area that the floods station. where all the children, where they have to like rescue all the children. That's where they live. So they're in like tenement buildings, right? Yeah. Like, it's, and it's underground. And it's, it's, and it's literally underground. underground. So the so, workers so do like, live underground, but then they work even farther even, underground. Got it. Got it. <laughs> but you know, like, like when you think when you think about it, because that 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 beginning. I mean, I most of my notes are the first half an hour. Then after that, then you go into the plot and all stuff. But it was most of the, of this reference. I think that they do they do a great job establishing that universe as fast as they can, and then you move forward. You automatically empathize. You understand who the antagonists are. You understand the the power struggle between classes. Like it's very it's very on point. Now, uh, it does have a resemblance of like of death camp of like of concentration camps, and then the demeanor, the the physical appearance of these people. It's just just like Holocaust survivors. The only difference is that this hasn't happened yet. So it cannot be a reference to that because this is going to happen 20 years from 20 years of, apart from that. What well, it did Hitler, reminded me, he was what still it around. Did reminded me, he was, he was, yeah, he was just like about to rise to power. He was in jail. No. He was in jail at that point, I think, because yeah. he, he did the push. And it's in not like atrocities but, hadn't happened elsewhere in the world. Right. Like we right. think but of the Holocaust as such film. a sentimental sentiment. Uh, but, but think about this. Like think about, and I, I promise that this is going to be we'll come back, back to that fast. Video. 
Um, think about this. Think about the fact that that this is this cannot be a reflection of events on the future. It's a reflection of the zeitgeist of that moment where Germany felt that it was overworked, underpaid, um, where it had like all this macroinflation. And then when you compare those shots, for some well, reason, this is when two- Karl Marx was around starting right. those kinds of philosophies and ideas about workers' revolutions. But think about these. The two things that came to mind when I saw that image was 1984 and THX 1183. Like it's 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 directly. I don't know. Like I feel that these two movies in the future pull from oh, something like this for sure. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I wanted to kind of touch back on your statement that Hitler liked this movie. So Fritz Lang was Jewish, uh, and he was uh, sort of distraught at how much uh, Hitler and Joseph Goebbels loved it. Uh, There's this kind of amazing factoid that I found that he met with uh, Goebbels and Goebbels offered to make him an honorary Aryan and said to him, uh, Mr. Lang, we decide who is Jewish and who is not. And and the next day, Fritz Lang moved to Paris. He fled Germany. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So... Like, yeah, just like when you hear shit about the Nazis and just like the That's way insane. that they operate and think, it is terrifying. It is like... <laughs> Look, think, I mean, I, I, I like that you mentioned this. I had no idea about that because there's so many there's so many references that, that could be... Like, look, we are influenced by the things that we watch. And eventually we start thinking that something was our idea, but then because we cannot trace where we got parts of it. When they show the upper... The upper like, when they're showing you the, 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 the down parts and then they go to, like, the Garden of the Sons, you know, yeah. like, they call it, like, something about, like, the yeah. Sons... The Club of the or Sons. Or something like that. Yeah. The Club of the Sons. So, for, so if you look at it, there are representations of, like, of, like Greek, of Greek statues the exact same way the Nazis you used to represent. Like there, it's the, the the fact that they are doing the the tracking, the track and field. It feels very 1936 Olympics. And then the dome, the dome that is next to that shot, it's it's almost exactly as the dome that Hitler wanted to build after the war, the false dome, yeah. the, the people's this, hall. This that film he wanted turned to into in a Germany. major. Like they took this film and turned it into a major propaganda piece. But yeah. but that was not Fritz Lang's yeah. wish with this film. Like talk about unintended consequences, right? You know, right? Inspiring the devil to build things. <laughs> oh. Yeah, it's really wild when you think about just the history. Uh, you know, another thing uh, I thought was fun is that this film takes place in 2026. <laughs> We're like almost there. Uh, <laughs> No, that's yeah. Uh, they said it just a hundred years uh, in the future from when they were making it, essentially. Uh, and it's like, yeah, why does it have to be so poignant? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, you know, Mister well, Business so, runs the world, right? It's like, yeah. Go ahead, Daniel. Sorry. So, so, no, no, no. You're good. Um, I was gonna say before one maybe possibly good thing that it influenced that is very accurate to how we communicate now is uh you know it's a sci-fi film and sci-fi often it like influences technology you kind of see video chat in it a little bit you do see a video uh, call it's crazy yeah so i was like i was like oh this was this i don't i'm guessing this would be the first reference to that that you would see it but because the idea of a live feed camera was not invented yet yeah so like it really is 
like looking ahead when it does that because it uh in the shot like it's a video call but it looks like uh Frederson can see the worker but the worker can't see Frederson so there's a camera right. there looking at him uh yeah but there was no there was no live feed like that had that wouldn't be invented for quite some time right mm -hmm. like it wouldn't be invented until like the 50s so so correct. way ahead of its time in in that remark in that regard it's really incredible mm -hmm. Well, I mean, if you think about it, like, I mean, it was it was invented around the 1930s because they did broadcast the the the, the Nazis did send a, a signal into space with the 1936 Olympics. That's the whole point of of contact of the movie Contact. So it was like it was close to be to be something about about a, a broadcasting. Or but the thing that gets me about all movies that depict the future, movies movies that are before the 1940s, is that the future is always depicted analog because the digital era yeah, has yeah, yeah. like these people could not conceive a computer. When if you if you have a presentation of anything about the future right now, it's heavily computer um, organized or or run. Yeah. Like this was completely analog. You still need the human to operate well, the, the machine. Well, the first computer was yet to be invented because that's a World War II byproduct, right? right. Uh, <laughs> so of course they couldn't kind of think that. But there is a lot of electrical things happening. Uh, the fact that they need humans as switchers is, you know, I think more a narrative uh, thing than like a practical. But you're right. Like gears, uh, steam. Like Steam, clocks, electricity. These are the things that represent technology, um, and also the the electric light, like the light bulb. So I'd say yeah, light bulbs, gears, like and steam are like the real imagery we see throughout that represents, you know, evolving technology. But there's so many shots, especially early in, of like piston style gears and just like fast moving yeah. large machines, because that was, you know, we're. We're, this is the industrial age and like that is kind of where they felt like everything was going was just more of that right they couldn't yet kind of picture how like diverse technology would would grow and the idea of technology that is highly advanced without moving parts was definitely not something they were thinking about right because we just used the flow of electricity to do an incredible amount of things now, but it's largely without moving parts. It's just with electrical current and like resistors, which is mm. always kind of hard to wrap your head around when you really think about like, how the hell does my phone work? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's mind boggling <laughs> and it would have been even more mind boggling from, you know, the mid 1920s. Yeah. Can I say this kind of takes it on a different um, to a different topic, but sure. just in that one scene where we see the machine the first time and we see the workers work like moving it so, so rhythmically. This film is so I, I appreciated it so much how carefully crafted crafted the blocking was on top of the production design. It was so highly stylized, especially for its time. Yeah, they move in time, uh, and also the music fits the scenes. Uh, this is a big change from Nosferatu where like, uh, Danielle, you had kind of liked the music, but it was like fairly one note throughout the whole film. Whereas this, I liked it in an ironic sense. Yeah. <laughs> like, like I was like, Oh yeah. And the mood weird. of like, the one piece is pretty good for a lot of that film. But this one is clearly like the music was written for the film. Uh, they released albums 
like that are very specific music. So even though it was all separate, um, and apparently the composer even played uh, pieces of the music for certain scenes on set so that the actors mm -hmm. could hear it. So I feel like during those like dancing scenes and like the big kind of numbers where there's a lot of movement going on, I'm sure that, that like the composer's there. And like even the ones you're saying where they're like moving back and forth in time, you know, all the workers are kind of moving in step. They probably had somebody there like counting the beat. Uh, right. So music, yeah. yeah, the music yeah. is is such a, like an integral part of this film. And like really, I was constantly kind of impressed by how well it matches and particularly with the blocking, like you mentioned. Right. It feels, it feels like musical theater. It feels like like it was like a musical yeah. theater piece and then they had certain beat and then they were doing like, oh, working, working, working. Yeah. Like yeah. it just like it, it was it was impressive for the time. So I, I noticed it. And I was like, oh, wow, like this is and I wonder, like, did they did they play the music on set or did they have somebody like point yeah. the beat for these people to do everything like it's it's to make a man a machine. That's fantastic. Yeah. And it, and it comes across so clearly, like the visual metaphors are very easy to grasp, like throughout the film, for the most part, it's just like, I like I didn't, like when I was kind of like watching the film and doing like this sort of self summary of the film, it was almost like too easy. I was like, I don't really have to break down what's happening. It's very easy to tell what he's going for, like at mm -hmm. all times. Um, I think this might be a good segue to talk about some of the behind the scenes aspects. So mm -hmm. Fritz Lang was uh, a pioneer in a lot of respects and maybe one that was, uh, and you know, I, I don't know what the, what the directors of the theater in this time were like, but he was very much that dictator of a director. So, you know, in the style that would follow, you know, the, the, the Kubrick's, and the, the David Finchers and the Alfred Hitchcocks of the world. Um, he was definitely of that ilk. You know, he would do take after take after take. Uh, and just like, I mean, there's a reason there's 310 days of production. It's because he constantly mm -hmm. reshot things uh, and kind of put his, put his actors through hell. Um, they talk about the, there's, uh, they, uh, uh, the stuff I read, research I read online talks about the, 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 the flooding scenes and how it was really was like wondering. damaging to people's health because the water was kept cold. Um, and I oh, think the reason yeah. the water is kept cold is so that the, the water doesn't uh, become germ filled. Because if you, if you shoot in warm water, everybody's going to get really sick. Like you're all going to get pink eye and you're going to get infections and like warm water is really dangerous to kind of spend a lot of time in, uh, if it's not, you know, like close to boiling, <laughs> like a hot, you know, hot water is one thing, but like warm water is super dangerous. Um, yeah. so they kind of, I feel like by necessity, they had to keep it colder, but that created problems in itself because of how extended the shooting was that people were spending just like inordinate amount of time in in this water i also like just was it took me a second to like separate myself from where we are now with like covid and not being in large groups of people i was wondering how people if people stayed healthy as they filmed this because it's just like hordes of people 
crammed together, like yeah. in many of the scenes. I don't it's, think health was... is a big concern. Germany was in the middle of like a really bad depression, you know. So when they say they had thirty-seven thousand extras, it's like these people wanted any work that they could get. You know, I'm yeah. sure it was oh, yeah. no, super sure. easy to find them. It was very easy to find. People were malnourished. Uh, but there are other stories of 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 health hazards on this shoot. So they uh, they found uh, about a thousand eleven hundred extras that were willing to shave their heads for the Babel scenes, like the flashbacks of the Tower of Babel. Um, and they shot out in the sun for extended periods, and a lot of them suffered burns and like they were literally hauling prop rocks and actual logs like in the hot sun like he he kind of put his 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 cast through what you're seeing on film it's kind of terrible like as much as i i feel for him kind of being jewish in germany at this time he was also playing dictator on set in a big way <laughs> where like you will build my vision there is kind of like this meta version of what you're seeing on screen happening in reality you know where like they talk about the thinkers who have the workers do all the work for them and like the literal production of the film matches that like you know fritz lang was clearly bourgeois like he was you know you look at look just look up some pictures of him he was clearly well to do um and like was able to kind of get the 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 equivalent of hundreds of millions of dollars to make this film so uh there is kind of a hypocrisy on display i feel like when watching this film uh didn't he also like force his actors to do the stunts of when when those machines started to blow up and they were like flying yes. through the air yeah so he didn't want to use dummies <laughs> because like he was recommended to use dummies for the explosion mm -hmm. scenes and he didn't want to do it because he felt like it would look too fake so he hooked up extras to harnesses and had them like swing uh and you know he so wanted them to really act like they were in pain which was apparently very easy because they were all actually in pain <laughs> like uh, um and uh the main actress who plays maria um let me find her name here uh bridget helms so, or Brigitte Great. Helm. Yeah, amazing. Uh, and oh. I do want to talk about her performance because I, for me, it was the best part of the movie was just yeah. watching her performance. But she uh, was very candid in later interviews about kind of the hell she went through. So there's a stunt where she has to, where she swings from a bell. And she did this stunt herself. There were, they right. put some like mattresses underneath, but it was a 25 foot drop. Um, and apparently... Uh, she got it on the first take, but she slammed against the wall in the take and, and hurt herself. And apparently she fled the set in tears. Um, the scene where fake Maria gets burned at the stake, spoiler alert, <laughs> uh, fake Maria gets burned at the stake in a very dramatic fashion. Um, the, the sort of head worker drags her by the hair. And apparently they did this a bunch of times. She really got like dragged by the hair um oh. she she passed like in during one of the takes her dress caught on fire because they used real fire um what yeah and in another take she passed out while she was tied to the stake because the the what they were using to tie her to the stake was too tight 
and it was it restricted her breathing to the point that she like passed out. <laughs> so like she could have died. Them. Like she literally was like throwing her her body at this film, uh, in a way that's just kind of like mind boggling in its lack of uh, safety or like care for her well being. <laughs> um, all that being said, I would like to laud Bridget Helms' performance because it's fantastic uh the difference between good maria and bad maria is so easily identifiable and just it, just in the way she moves you know mm -hmm. like it's so incredible. you guys have uh yeah thoughts on the acting because like, <laughs> she looks like she's oh. having so much fun as evil maria you know she's it just so... felt like there's yeah, go ahead so what oh, okay oh so um... manic i was gonna say that is, yes that is like that's the, the perfect word because i just felt like every single moment that she had she was like putting her whole energy into it like it's very carefully thought out um even just like the look in her face like having like one eye open like she was just shifty eyes like you just immediately you can you can always tell the difference the yeah. only time the way I she would hold her shoulders trouble, and her hands like yeah the one time you had trouble was what um, but it made sense was when it was real Maria being accused, like, oh, they were like, oh, there's the witch. And she was like, oh, God, they're going to kill me. And they, she like starts shifting around and she like starts running away. And I was like, wait, hold on, which Maria is this? Yeah. And then then you see them like switch back. But I feel like I would also be kind of manic if someone was chased, like an angry mob was going to like yeah. burn me at the stake. Yeah. So on I'm kind of a sillier note, um, good <laughs> Maria is really bad at running away. Like she zigzags everywhere she goes and like throws herself into the walls. Like, <laughs> like it's really, uh, it's really it's a damsel up. in the stress. Uh, but she's also really fast. Like she outruns yeah. that mob really well. Uh, I guess the yeah. adrenaline or something, but, <laughs> but for, for doing a bunch of zigzags, she also manages to outrun like a thousand people. So I was, I was, <laughs> Felt like it was impressive. There would be no stopping me if adrenaline would kick in. So it makes sense. Yeah. But but yeah yeah yeah. I was Although really stressed out wonder... during those scenes too. Of just like this movie gets really tense near the end. Yeah, yeah. I was. Her dancing was impressive. Her dancing. Yes. Her dancing was very impressive. Her dancing was like I wasn't expecting her to be able to move, to move her body that way. But then I'm seeing it, it was like, oh wow, yeah. that's that's a belly. I mean, I don't know if that's belly dancing or something, but the hip moves were like incredible. Like you are trained in dancing. Like you're not just an actress and stuff like like they these people were like highly talented. They could. This do was her so film many debut, also. Really. Wow. So wow. she must have a theater background. Like uh, Fritz Lang had found her. Or had uh, had auditioned her for another film and then wound up casting her later for this film, uh, but this was her screen debut. She died in the nineties. She she was she died in ninety two or something like that. Ah. She so so she survived this film and a lot of other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, but apparently, also the suit. So she's the one who is inside the automaton suit whenever we see it move. Uh, oh, they didn't that's... they didn't use like a, a anyone else. Um, but apparently the suit was, would like sort of cut into her and like, like she got a lot of bruising from it and like, she really hated doing the suit, but like Fritz Lang was adamant that she be, be the one to do it. Like, again, he was just kind of terrible was... to this poor, to this poor woman. 
uh, <laughs> and to everybody, to everybody, yeah, yeah, to pretty much to everybody. Um, but it seems like she got kind of the brunt of it. Uh, she wasn't the only one, one of the cast, like the the Gustav Froelich, uh, who plays Frederer, also had some horror stories about like the number of times that they would have to do takes. And he said there was one where he like has to fall at her at Maria's feet, and they they did the shot for like three consecutive days of shooting. And he said at the end of it, he could like barely walk. Like he, like he had oh this moment God. where he couldn't even walk. Uh, so yeah, no, Bridget wasn't alone in her torture. Uh, I suppose they they found solidarity in the fact that we're all suffering under this maniac. <laughs> uh, you know, it's 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 this thing where like you can't help but laud the film for how well it's made. But then when you hear about how it was made, it was like, is it is it worth it? You know, it brings up these kind of moral quandaries. You know, I've in uh, Jose and I went to film school together, and I feel like um, we were kind of taught not uh, not to this extent, but there was a, an element of the director does what needs to be done to get the what they need on camera, and I've really kind of leaned away from that the older I get, where I don't yeah. feel like it's necessary. I feel like you can yeah. get you can get good performance and you can get magic without tricking or torturing your cast, <laughs> uh, which is yeah. something that a lot of older directors did. You know, Alfred Hitchcock was known to be very manipulative to his uh, actors and actresses. Makes me especially actresses, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, especially actresses. Uh, like, what's her name on the birds? Is that Janet Lee? Um, I don't, yeah. yeah you, there's like horror stories from throwing the birds, birds um, at her. Yeah, exactly. Where he's like literally chucking birds that are off screen, and like you can, the terror is like real. <laughs> um, so, but I've kind of gone against that because I feel like if you work closely with actors and if you cast the right people, you don't mm -hmm. need to do that. <laughs> like, yeah. if you need to do that, I feel like just you know maybe maybe you need to reflect about your technique that's my personal thought i don't know if uh jose if you uh have different feelings <laughs> or, or you know somewhere, somewhere I mean, in between like after like I put even if out. i even if i do would i say it on camera <laughs> right right like even if i even if i even if i agree with the set with the sentence of you do what you need to do we do you do i want i'm just to wondering if like like uh you know is there just a line that you can cross or, or is it something that See? you should avoid altogether? You know, because like back in the day, it felt like there were no lines and they were just like, you know, do what, like anything goes. And like the further and further we get in time, the more, you know, the closer those lines get to you and it's easier to cross, you know, it's easier to cross lines uh, because we know how, because we're, we're just more aware of kind of respecting other people, I think. And treating other people I like people. I feel like I often have moments where I'm like, okay, we're done. We're not going to do it again. And the actor will be like, wait, hold on. No, let's do it again. Like I overly am like cautious mm. of it, but I feel like, you know, because I feel like actors are so willing to do whatever to just to get the role, mm. which makes it even more problematic. Um, but I think it, even if you had to like, 
say like, oh, you got to do what you got to do. It's all about consent and like communication. You should never like manipulate someone like, like tricking or like any sort of psychological, you know, torment. Like, I think that's what makes Alfred Hitchcock like a terrible person, I think, uh, for doing that. That's like, there's the difference between being a good director when you work with people and then just completely using people like objects, like cattle. I think it's about communication Um, because it's like a lot of actors are not only willing, but want to push themselves to Mm -hmm. to extremes. Right. Um, You know, you get the, the, on the, on the very extreme side, you get like your Jarrett Leto's, right. Who like, Mm -hmm. you know, he's like whole thing is that he just wants to be fully not himself. Right. (laughs) And like is willing to do whatever you would ask him to do. Or like the Christian yeah. Bales, who's like, yeah, I'll lose 200 pounds. I don't care. You know, I'll almost die for the machinist. You know, I, yeah, uh, that's yeah. fine. You know, you get these actors who are like very willing. So I feel like yeah. if if you've got someone who's unwilling, like, and this is maybe dangerous water, but like yeah. there's always somebody who's willing. <laughs> like there's, there's some masochist yeah. out there who wants you to torture them. Uh, and, you know, but I, I agree with you that, there is sort of a a consent issue that needs to be addressed through, through open communication. And that like, you know, you need to kind of various, you need to establish those safe words. I feel like it's like, if you are safe words, (laughs) if you are going to uh, have something where like, you know, you, you tell your actress that her mother has died to, to get her to cry, which is like a, I forget which film did this, but that's like a real story. Um, then I feel like you need to have something up front where they're aware that like you could be manipulating them and that mm-hmm. if it's too real, there needs to be a mm-hmm. way for you to be like, okay, if this is real, you got to fucking tell me <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, yeah. to kind of break that illusion. <laughs> Because you're dealing with humans and they will carry trauma with them. And and trauma has a way of self-replicating and spreading into the future. That, like, I, I feel like more than just caring about the person in front of you when you traumatize somebody, you also have to think about what the consequence of their trauma will be on others. Because it's a ripple effect. And I think that this is where you know, a lot of older directors kind of lose sight, you know, it's like, okay, I'm doing something to the actress. She agreed to be an actress, right? She knew what she was signing up for. We all know how this industry works. But then when she goes crazy and she's like crazy to the people around her, suddenly you've spread that trauma like exponentially. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And that's something I feel like was never considered. So, you know, it's just like, I think a callous way of, of looking at humans and directing them. It's like, <laughs> this is a funny way to say this. Um, it's kind of like um, the relationship between like landlord landlords and tenants where like, you know, you're trying to make money off of it, but like, you know, the tenant is actually surviving off of this. Like, you know, they're, I, you don't know, what they're willing to give up to pay whatever they need to like not be put out on the street. But then, you know, the landlord it can be either very forgiving about that or, you know, I've seen 
like post on people who are landlords who are like, Hey, my, um, my, my tenants, uh, you know, everything was put in order. How can I keep the deposit anyway? Like they will literally take advantage. So it's like, yeah. anyway, sorry. That's just what that reminds no, me. No, that's of. an interesting parallel. Um, Jose, you've been kind of quiet in a lot of times. I've, I've been listening. Yeah, yeah. I've been listening. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to practice that a little more. Uh, <laughs> it's, you know, I've it's, seen you direct, it's complicated. I've never seen you be an asshole to your, to your actors. I think, I Maybe think... I just wasn't around at the right moment, but I, from my experience, I don't know if your view is that I could, I would do anything it takes, but I've never seen you really cross any lines that you've always I've been had my open. moments. I had my moments, most likely not with actors. I had my moments with other, I mean, I had a couple of stories, personal stories about things that happened on set that, that, that did push my boundaries outside of what you're used to, to know me for. But, but you know how my mind works. My mind works on, on, on like, I don't think this has an answer because Kubrick, Fellini, uh, Bergman, Hitchcock, we revere them and then they were assholes, but we still revere them. We still go into film school and go like, I want to try to do what they did. Well, what they did was being assholes to people until they got what they wanted and then we praise them for that. So then it's difficult to tell somebody that that's not the way when yeah. all their idols have been doing have been doing that for for several years. I, I personally don't think that you should do something like that. But again, it's like it's like Daniel said, like some, some actors will be like, no, I can't do it again. I can do method acting. I can like really hurt me or really slap me i mean i it's it's just, it's kind of a sleepless slope i don't think it should come from the director but at the same time it's like when you were saying about trauma right you're saying like oh you don't want to create trauma you don't want your actors your trauma you want your performance to come into set with trauma because that's where the performance is going to come a person cannot avoid trauma trauma during their life so how could you be an actor if you're not pulling from real emotions and stuff like that? That involves trauma. You should not cause the trauma, but you do capitalize on the trauma of other people for performances. Like that's just like mm -hmm. every single actor that you talk about, that you talk to goes and says, when I do this scene, I'm thinking about the dog that got run over when I was five years old. Like that's where they're pulling from. You can't fake these things. They just pull it out of real emotions. So hopefully, yes, your actors are going to come from trauma with trauma, but you're not going to let and go with more <laughs> right <laughs> no and you're right that it is a complicated uh issue and it is a um a, like a, there is kind of some nuance there in terms of capitalizing on trauma because you're absolutely right good drama comes from traumatic experience uh, most comedians have terrible lives <laughs> that's that's what's like like it's a consistency that it's that is unbelievable it's like that's exactly that like comedy becomes the coping mechanism and then they eventually find a way to capitalize on trauma like this is empowering people to say like look take this and make it into something good i also think that like as humans and as civilization gets more knowledge we there is kind of a uh a mantra that we need to have to do better you know mm. it's like yes i can revere what horrible people have done like the byproduct or the product of what they've done but my goal is to is to make something equally great but without a harsh human cost you know like to do yeah. better you know to do something you know, because we always want to innovate, right? We always, mm -hmm. we're always looking for something that's, that's novel and new. And so like as creators, we want to create that. Um, and so that means pushing boundaries, but you have to kind of choose where you want to push, right? And I feel like pushing boundaries in the direction of, you know, 
things that would create trauma for your actors is not where I want to push boundaries. <laughs> you know, I want to push boundaries on the ideas on the page. Right. Mm. Um, like I, I have a lot of ideas for films that I could never produce because they would be wildly inexpensive, but or wildly expensive, but the, the concepts are as far out as I can put them. Right. That's where I'm trying to kind of, that's where I would like to innovate if, if it's at all possible. So, you know, I think you had, you kind of have to pick your battles, so to speak. And I would almost sacrifice performance for concept if I had to kind of choose. Uh, ideally, you don't have to choose, but yeah, Danielle? <laughs> I feel like you can, with, I mean, okay, ideally you wouldn't want to do this, but you could make someone's performance better through editing. Like you can always and you do and through blocking, uh, film so. filmmakers do yeah. that all the time, right? And mm -hmm. look at reality editing. That's entirely what it is. It's performance from editing, right? You get mm -hmm. producers who try to coax them to say, you know, good sound bites or whatever, but mm -hmm. for the most part, it's all done in post. So I, mm -hmm. I think that that's entirely acceptable, and that like even great actors are enhanced by editing. Like there's there's no doubt about it, right? I mean, think about this. Like, is the is the is the job of a, is the job of a director is to is to help is is to create a vision and then to help an actor become what they need them to become. Because it's not a democracy. It's like it's the director's vision. So if you're not able to, if you're not a good communicator, and then you have to 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 resource to trickery to get a yeah. performance, that's on you. That's the director's fault. Like yeah. you need to take the blame if you get or didn't get a performance. It's not the actor's fault. It's the way that you're communicating the techniques that you're using. Some of these people might just get frustrated and eventually just do what Kubrick and, and Fellini and all these people did. I don't think that that's supposed to be the way that you do it, but it's definitely a technique that has worked before and then some people emulate it. At the end of the day, I mean, if you take this movie, for example, then this movie, as you're saying, is, is kind of an oxymoron of itself because it's, it's, it's sending a message that it's that at the same time is not being done during production. Right. But they're saying it, you know, the mediator between the hand and the mind is the heart, right? <laughs> so that they say it there. They say it. So they say on, a, on it in the, the production, movie. who is that? Because the director's the head, right? Mm. The actors is the hand, right? The crew's the, the crew is the hands. Director? Who's the mediator, right? The assistant it, director, maybe. Yeah, I guess like your AD, down. also the producer, I suppose. Um, I think it's a person. I think it's or, a sensation. Or, or is the producer? The head, the head, right? Yeah. And the director is supposed to be the mediator, right? I think that is kind yeah. of how it is because the director is supposed to communicate like what is on the page to what is happening on production. Uh, right. But now nah, the mediator is a union representative. <laughs> you might be right there. <laughs> yeah, it's your oversight. Um, it's, it's AOC. The mediator is AOC. <laughs> Uh, I mean, she's she's the heart. Yeah, she's yeah, she really is. She's got some heart, right? Anyway. Um, yeah. All right, I think we'll wrap so, it up now. Uh, this has been we a, this, a tangent. There. Yeah, I think it was a good one. Though. We, that that was I a good tangent. I, I like that tangent early because <laughs> I was really enjoying the the discussion. It's kind of what I was hoping for from this podcast, and I think I I brought on the right people to join me on this adventure. Uh, thank you guys so much. Uh, Jose Venutolo, wonderful as always to have you. Thank you. I appreciate being here. I'm enjoying this, this series and I'm looking forward to the next seven. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Danielle, also 
Great to have you. Wonderful insight as always. Always good to be here. I'm super excited to see what is it, Seventh Seal next? Yeah, next will be Seventh Seal. Um, do you want to put out any like where the people can find you type thing? You, you can find me at Danielle Stories on Instagram. Cool. And uh, I've been your host, John Olson. You can find me at John in Paradox. There's no H anywhere in that. Um, next, as Danielle said, we're going to do Seventh Seal uh bergman as was referenced this episode so we'll see uh you know <laughs> we'll we'll see uh what torture uh his his cast went through and if it was worth it or uh to be if it deserves a tip of the hat or a wag of the finger as they say <laughs> we should make we should make i mean i'm gonna just put this out there but we should make a series we should make a series of podcasts and then electing only films that are known for how they abuse <laughs> their, their production and then yeah. and then and then we make a series about Any films Kubrick that did film. not have films that were great and revered but 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 actually were very good in production just to see the juxtaposition of these two things yeah i don't know it's hard to know it when, it's hard to know when directors are good because you always hear the horror stories to, to be fair with David Fincher, he does a lot of repetitive things, but it's so that he can have control over the performance in the edit. Yeah. But it's still not ethical to keep going for 50 takes. I don't know. Yeah, 50 anyway. takes, you know, it's crazy. Uh, especially when you say things like, all right, just delete those first 20 takes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. If you don't have... If yeah, you there's don't a have famous story in... about Jake Gyllenhaal being very disheartened to hear that exact phrase on Zodiac. <laughs> like they'd been doing it over and over and David Fisher's just like just delete those takes like just just chuck them out the window and it's like it. what have I been doing in my life uh, right. it's 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 a little it's a little complicated to think about Jack Nicholson without thinking here is Johnny and then not realizing that that was there because he did it 120 times <laughs> right all right um, anyway <laughs> we'll, we'll cut off now uh and say uh, thank you for watching. Uh, if you're on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe. Uh, if you're listening to this on podcast, please subscribe so you can find out when future episodes will come in. Uh, be sure to join our Facebook group. Uh, you can find it either by typing in Views and Paradox or its original title, The Movie Club Collective. Uh, we've been doing uh, some fun film brackets uh, and we kind of post movie news and just general interaction there and like post about coming episodes so feel free to join that group it's a fun space uh that is mostly apolitical which is kind of a, a nice thing on the social medias so uh until next time uh watch good movies and you know use your critical thinking skills <laughs> <laughs>